Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Welcome back to January 6th, 1969. We're on the run-up to lunch now, but there's a few songs to run through and new gadgets to play with. More on this later, of course. My podcast recommendation? I've just discovered this one. The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. The episode on the history of the song Rocket 88 took me on a journey back to 1951 and those early pioneers of rock and roll. Well worth a listen. Back at Winter of Discontent, we're at episode 23. The series has evolved a little and each instalment is now longer, but I think each can be enjoyed on their own, or you can binge the series as a whole. For those who just need to catch up, here is my usual summary of episode 22. The Beatles have assembled in the performance area on the soundstage, but it's chilly, and Michael asks for the heaters to be put on. Rather than pick up his bass, Paul heads for the Lowry organ and begins improvising. George tunes up his guitar to the organ. Paul enthusiastically demonstrates a new idea he's had over the weekend, which could become a song for Ringo. At the moment, it's just a hook called Carry That Weight. Ringo attempts to sing along, but the key is quite high for him. Paul then improvises a verse and we get a little insight into his writing process. George compliments John on his satirical 1969 diary. John complains that it represents his life at the moment. Philosophically, George contemplates that no matter what you do in life, it can be summed up in a similar mundane manner. In the background, Ringo is demonstrating what he has so far of his song, Octopus's Garden, and pauses to explain its origin to Paul. Paul continues on organ with Carry That Weight, and for a second, it looks like this could turn into a McCartney Starkey co-write. Paul plays a version of Carry That Weight in what he terms a country style, playing bass on the organ pedals to demonstrate. As George asks for new guitar strings, still unsatisfied with his guitar. Paul improvises a different verse for Carry That Weight on the spot. This time, George sings along suggesting alternative lyrics. You're gonna open that gate next time. 
Paul then starts to play a tune he'll return to later and will eventually see light as Castle of the King of Birds. This evolves into a lengthy and repetitive jam, the first in these sessions, possibly inspired by most of the band watching the Cream concert last night on TV. As this jam comes to a conclusion, a change of organ tone leads Paul to start another jam, loosely based on Louis Luai by the Kingsman. Paul changing sounds on the Lowry organ as he goes. He then hits upon a tone that reminds him of the theme to the Sooty Show, a popular children's television programme. John is the first to suggest doing some work, offering that they run through Across the Universe, a song from last year that he wasn't happy with. They attempt a version without access to the lyrics, but the band performance has potential. George tells John that he likes the version they recorded, but John thinks they can do it better. George then, procrastinating as ever, runs through a rendition of Bob Dylan's song, I Want You. Paul switches from organ to his newly restrung 1963 Hofner bass and tries to get it in tune. George, still thinking about Dylan, talks with Paul about the film Festival. It's about the Newport Folk Festival, which has footage of Bob Dylan and his new electric band causing outrage in 1965. The discussion continues as George mentions interviews with Sunhouse and Mike Bloomfield on the definition of the blues. Paul is reminded of John Lee Hooker, who he is convinced lives in Britain, though Glyn disagrees, and tries to get his strings in tune on his bass. The tape runs out at this point, and now we can rejoin the Beatles on the Twickenham soundstage. A vague blues jam in the background. Again, it's not for you, Blue. This is roll 33, slate 67 sync. Mal and Ringo are brainstorming lyrical ideas for Octopus's Garden. Mal's ideas won't get used, but the essence of this kind of wordplay approach will appear in the line resting our head on the seabed. Having a conversation on the drum riser, clearly he's tapping his sticks on the drum shells. That was Paul saying, you've got a plec, asking for a plectrum. Thank you. 
George asking Mal if someone is going to town, a colloquialism for the west of London, so probably the Apple offices or EMI. Mal says Joe's coming up at lunchtime. According to the new Get Back book, Joe is the chauffeur, although he isn't Ringo or John and Yoko's chauffeur. Georgie's saying, could you ring or speak to what sounds like Malcolm and tell him to put it in that order? George has decided on a running order for the Jackie Lomax album over the weekend. It's not clear whether Ringo contributed as George had asked him to on Friday. Mal says he'll get it to Jackie too. Paul starts improvising a rock and roll tune. The PA is now on. You wear your women, you wear your women high. This obscures the rest of George's conversation. Note Paul's bass sounding very trebly. Maybe this is the fixing a whole sound. Now he's singing, You Wear Your Women Out. George has joined in for a solo. Tuning is a bit unstable on the Hofner bass with its new strings. improvised tune picks up again. I'm assuming that this has been prompted by Paul reacquainting himself with this different Hofner bass and he's enjoying playing it. John tries momentarily to steer the band into I've Got a Feeling, but Paul wants to do another verse. gets his way starting I've got a feeling at last but pauses to retune the band plow on anyway mm -hmm. 
the first proper rehearsal of the day. George still not quite getting that microtonal lead break. The balance for this recording isn't great. Paul's bass dominates, John's guitar and the drums are barely audible. The structure of the song is now complete. Paul is parodying William Mann's gushing appraisal of the Beatles songs in 1963. In his 1980 Playboy interview with David Sheff, John Lennon recalled, It was only after some guy in the London Times said there were Aeolian cadences in It Won't Be Long that the middle classes started listening to it because somebody put a tag on it. The article John was referring to was titled What the Beatles Sang and was published on December 27, 1963. Written by the Times' chief music critic, William S. Mann, who was classically educated in piano and composition and who usually focused on European classical, not pop music, in this article Mann made the bold, though some would deem it opportunistic, claim that the Outstanding English composers of 1963 must seem to have been John Lennon and Paul McCartney. While I'm sure such a statement might have caused a few raised eyebrows and dropped monocles over the breakfast toast and marmalade, the band had already received high praise from high places. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, declared them fresh and vital after their performance on the Royal Variety Show that same year. Mann, however, was not concerned with what he termed the social phenomenon of Beatlemania, but rather the qualities of Lennon McCartney as composers, as opposed to teen idols. His praise for their work so far was not entirely hyperbolic. His conclusion that the Beatles have brought a distinctive and exhilarating flavour into a genre of music that was in danger of ceasing to be musical at all was not too far off the mark. Lennon may have overstated the impact of Mann's review, but it was the first step on the Beatles' journey from pop stars to serious artists. The Beatles themselves, however, never found the article's highbrow tone anything less than comical. The bass is drifting out of tune again. New strings are the probable cause, though the guitars are also tuning up. So it might be the cold. Thank you. 
Paul starts another jam. This one we're calling My Imagination. fine bossa nova drum pattern. This is a peculiar poor skill to improvise song ideas on the spot. Johnny's playing the riff from Watch Your Step, the song that inspired I Feel Fine, hence Ringo's drum pattern. Tape runs out. John's riff has evolved in the interim. This is roll 34, slate 68, take one. George, who has been relatively quiet, seems to have plugged his guitar into a fuzz box, i.e. a distortion pedal. Again, this may be the cream influence from last night. John calls for Mel. He's then absent from the audio for a while. Massive feedback, a side effect of the signal boost of the distortion sound. definitely enjoys playing this bass more than the other one. That really is an uncharacteristic guitar sound from George. It's yet another distraction from doing any rehearsing. Thank you. 
We can now hear John has also got some kind of distortion effect going on, which explains his brief absence. kind of jazzy shuffle accompanied by two slightly distorted guitars. Paul is singing, but the audio recording is now focused on the guitars, so you can't really hear what he's saying. One of the transcriptions I've got identifies that last jam as I'm going to pay for this ride after the last line that Paul sings. That sounds like John is saying, fat mama, she slowly does me good. John adjusting his amp, still very distorted. Nice little lamp, says John. says to John is that reverb John says no it's just that old amp so he may have switched amps Paul then goes on to say that Glyn says it's good that they're using smaller amps because other groups use big amps but you get a better sound with smaller amps we heard that conversation earlier today Sounds like John is now interested in doing Don't Let Me Down. Tape runs out. As the recording starts again, they're running through Don't Let Me Down. This is camera A, row 35, slate 70 take 1, camera A. That sounds very much like John attempting a guitar solo, which would have been an interesting addition. He loses his way a bit here though. 
Another solo from John dissolves into laughter. John spontaneously starts the song again. Don't let me down! Paul clowns along at first. These new toys are proving another barrier to getting serious work done. However, John is pleased with that performance. Well, we got that one off. As they start a recap of One After 909, another guitar effect is added. George has switched to a wah-wah effect. That's Paul clowning about on the bass, probably for the cameras. The solo is over the middle eight chords, not the verse chords as before. Paul pointing out that he prefers the solo to be over the verse chords and that John is to sing the middle eight. George talking about the wah-wah, he says it's called wah-face. It's based on the distortion effect fuzz-face. a few lines. They call me Fuzzface. The Beatles entered Studio 2 at EMI's facility at Abbey Road on the 1st of July 1963 with a new song written only five days earlier by John and Paul in a room at the Turks Hotel in Newcastle in between performances at the city's majestic ballroom. The song She Loves You, as Beatlesbible.com puts it, distilled the essence of excitement in their music and became a defining moment in their early career. Perhaps in an attempt to capture more of that raw live excitement in their sound, John and George attempted to make use of a new innovation in amplified guitar sound. 
the Maestro Fuzz Tone FZ1. Purchased presumably by Mal from Selma's music store on the Charing Cross Road in London's West End. The Maestro Fuzz Tone eventually rose to prominence when Keith Richard used one to create the guitar hook for the Rolling Stones single Satisfaction. Despite being captured in photographs for the She Loves You session, the Maestro device wasn't used on the eventual recording. John also is reported as attempting to use the effect again on the recording session for George's Don't Bother Me. But again, George Martin, and therefore by default the wider world, were not yet ready for the sound of distorted guitars on pop singles. Well, not quite. In 1961, Marty Robbins released the otherwise mainstream country single Don't Worry, the record featured the recording accident that created a distinctive sound and changed electric guitar forever. A faulty preamp in the recording console created an extreme but ultimately quite pleasing distortion effect on the lead line played on a six-string bass. If you care to listen to the song, the effect appears at 1 minute and 26 seconds on the record. So pleased was he with the results, recording engineer Glenn Snoddy worked to create an inline unit that would create the same effect. The resultant foot-operated effects box was eventually offered to Gibson, who agreed to distribute the pedal as the Maestro Fuzz Tone. In this era when no one really knew if rock and roll was a passing fad, the Fuzz Tone was marketed as a device that could turn your guitar sound into something akin to a cello or a trombone. The demonstration disc sold with the pedal outlined how to achieve this. Keith Richard is on record as saying he played the Satisfaction guitar part as a placeholder for what he hoped would be a brass overdub, so this way of thinking was commonplace. As we have noted, the Beatles acquired theirs but didn't make use of them, at least initially, and until the Rolling Stones popularised the sound, the fuzz tone was not a big seller. The history of the fuzz effect made another advance in 1965. Guitarist Vic Flick most famous for his twanging guitar figure in the James Bond theme, brought his Maestro Fuzz Tone unit into Macari's music store in London's West End, unhappy with the sound. Gary Hurst, the electronics engineer in the store, modified the pedal, increasing its voltage from 3 to 9 volts, changing the sustain and opening up the frequency range. So pleased were they with the results that the modified effect was mass-produced and marketed as the Solar Sound Tone Bender. It was a prototype of this pedal that came to be used as the first fuzz effect on the Beatles record. Paul McCartney played his Rickenbacker bass through the tone bender on George Harrison's song Think For Yourself. Although pictured in rehearsals and in the studio in 1966 with various distortion devices, it was in fact quite rare for the Beatles to record with inline effects pedals. The team at EMI much preferred to create the distortion effects in the control room with their own equipment, where they felt they had more control. Here at Twickenham, however, the Beatles are looking for ways to alter their guitar sounds for their live shows. With this in mind, Mal or Kevin have clearly been dispatched to Sound City to acquire a number of new toys for John and George to experiment with. The distortion effect that you hear during this jam session is the unmistakable sound, at least to my ears, of the Dallas Arbiter Fuzz Face Distortion Unit. This is an effect pedal derived from the tone bender and housed in a gimmicky circular housing that resembled a face if you have a tendency to anthropomorphize. For a reference of the sound of the fuzz face, think of Edwin Collins' 1990s hit, A Girl Like You and the fuzzy guitar figure between each verse. 
Although in later January 1969 session photos, George is seen with both the silver fuzz face pedal and a Vox wah-wah pedal, what George is experimenting with right now is a short-lived hybrid of the two effects, the wah face. Wah-wah as an effect was an even more recent development in the sound of amplified guitar than distortion. The story of its origin is a little less certain with accounts differing as to who inspired the creation. As with the fuzz effect, the first use of a wah effect can be found on a country record, Chet Atkins' instrumental Hot Toddy. On this recording, Chet is using some method to change the tone of his guitar as he plays the main theme, creating an approximation of a wah sound. Perhaps to mimic the effect used by trumpet players with their bell mutes, or if you believe the movies, their hats. The effect as an electronic device may not have happened without the Beatles' influence on the market for Vox equipment. When Beatlemania gripped America, every up-and-coming beat group wanted a Vox amplifier. Vox at the time was only a small UK-based operation and expanded into the US market by collaborating with Warwick Electronics, an American company. Not only did Warwick distribute Vox equipment, they also manufactured and created their own specific designs for the American market. One project in 1966 was to modify the British Super Beetle amp design into a transistor-only model to be called the Vox Amplifonic Orchestra. Warwick engineer Brad Plunkett was charged with the task of replacing the $4 tone circuit and making a more cost-effective alternative. Plunkett experimented with a transistorized mid-range boost circuit, which when operated produced that wah-wah sound. One account states that Plunkett then got saxophonist Bill Page to play through the circuit and then hit upon the idea of fitting the circuit inside the rocker volume pedal of a Vox Continental organ, since a saxophonist would need three hands to work the effect and play. The alternative account is that session guitarist Del Kasher, known for his TV theme work and who also worked for Vox doing product demonstrations, heard Plunkett's experiments and asked for the effect to be housed in the volume pedal casing. Either way, Vox didn't initially see the potential in an effects pedal for guitars and chose to directly market the wah-wah to brass players. Their reasoning was that there are 40 players in a dance band and only one guitarist. Sarcastically, Del Kasher suggested marketing the pedal with an endorsement from trumpet player Clyde McCoy, known for the wah-wah mute effect on his record Sugar Blues. Vox agreed, and the first signature guitar effect was born, ironically, not made for a guitarist. Unsatisfied with this, Kasher asked Vox if he could make a demonstration record to show how the effect could be used on guitar. Vox had so little faith in this application that they only pressed the record on plastic-coated cardboard. As a result, very few are in existence now. As we can hear on this audio track, George is unsatisfied with the compromise sound of building the fuzz face effect into the wah face pedal and asks for a replacement. That replacement may very well be the Vox wah. And as a result, it's possible that George at some point listened to Del Cash's demonstration disc. Have a listen to this outro tune from the end of that disc and see if you think he did.
Paul suggests putting wah-wah on his voice. George says he's tried it once, it doesn't work. John plays a more boogie-style version of One After 909, a bit like the 1963 version, still using that distortion effect. George on Wild Wild guitar and Paul on bass, but no Ringo. This is A Camera Slate 71 Sync A Camera. John improvising a couple of lines there. He sings capture a tune or chapter or two. And Paul finishes it off with shop steward, shop steward. I'm sure he says better go for a break time in a minute after that. George dissatisfied with how the wah wah pedal sounds. John and George play a brief blues. It sounds like everyone else is taking a break. George playing a faithful rendition of Scotty Moore's solo on Elvis's That's Alright Mama. That's Alright Mama is a song written by blues singer Arthur Crudup and first recorded in 1946. 
The best-known version is as the debut single of Elvis Presley, recorded in July 1954. John starts running through the song 30 Days. George unplugs his wah-wah, perhaps changing it for another. Thirty Days is a 1955 chart single by Chuck Berry, written in the country idiom in tribute to Hank Williams' style of writing. That sound is what happens when you connect to Wawa the wrong way around. David Gilmore of Pink Floyd used this sound to great effect on the song Echoes. You hear George say, maybe that means it's inside out. George complains that every time he puts his toe down on the rocker of the pedal he switches it off. It's just a quirk of the design he needs to get used to. Tape runs out. It's wild. Audio is still of John and George noodling on guitars, playing with their new pedals.
John asked for some more tea, but wants it made with our tea. He and Yoko have brought their own blend, it appears. George runs through Hear Me Lord again, not really getting much interest from John. George has to rethink and change his key on the song. He begins teaching the song to John and, by the sounds of it, Paul. He then pauses to offer an idea for the show of him performing the song with the Staples Singers. The Staples Singers were, at the time, one of the greatest and most respected gospel groups. Formed by Roebuck Pops Staples and featuring his children Cleotha, Purvis and Mavis. Interestingly, the family name is Staples, but professionally they term themselves the Staple Singers. Ringo is back on the drums, John on fuzzy guitar trying to solo, Paul playing bass very quietly. Paul asks, do we want to do it here? Meaning the show. George doesn't think the space is good and they could have better mics. Paul suggests they walk around the studio complex to see if there's something better. Yeah. 
George suggests doing it at EMI. Paul says, well, we are here. Paul again mentions the little dubbing studio, but that might be too small for an audience. George says, it would be okay if the ceiling wasn't so high. Okay, Paul says, we'll build a low ceiling. Now the mics have moved closer so we can hear better. Paul makes reference to Wilson Hall. We must sort of say, even if we build it over us, you know, just like, yeah, that's what I was saying to Glyn, like Wilson Hall. Wilson Hall, Speak Road, Garston, Liverpool, was a venue played a number of times by the Quarrymen and Ringo's old band, the Eddie Clayton Skiffle Group. It is thought to be the location of George Harrison's first meeting with the Quarrymen. Build a sort of box around us so that we, and we have like a dressing room. Build around it. George Martin arrives with the strange quip, Do you like my ears? A shame we can't see. Paul wants to discuss the staging of the show now. George Martin suggests doing it over lunch. That's quite an interesting reaction from Paul. It's like a parent-child relationship he has with George Martin. He says, well, we're not really rehearsing now, we're just messing. George, now relating to George Harrison, about a conversation he's had with Magic Alex. Now, Alex said he can build one. I don't think we should have a built Alex one in, because it might go wrong. Yes. You know? So I think, I think it's better to have something that we know we can use and is reliable. A straight-out guffaw of derision from Glyn Johns at the prospect of Alex building an 8-track console, which is interesting. George Martin proposes the solution which they will eventually use. Okay, well, if we got a, I know, if we got the one they had in Studio Two, the four-track, yeah, but adapted to take. Uh, well, no, what we have is two four-track mixers together. Because we might as well be on How one, two, saying? three, oh, no, four, they are, they are linked up. five, It's just six, like it's just like a divided eight-track. You see, if we just split, even if we're doing like three singing and three guitars and drums, six tracks. You know, just in case, you never know. Oh, we're going to definitely have it. Yes. It's just so the mixer doesn't make any difference yeah, being two fours. It's not the really same as one. It just doesn't look so good, that's all. Ah, okay, so that's all right. Uh, Glenn, are you happy with that? You are, that's all right for you, is it? Two fours. Yeah, I mean, even if it isn't, I've got IBC's gear, the four. So the equipment should be all right then? I think so, yeah. 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 Uh, I see that George has got his 3M machine, which we'll use as a standby. Yeah. Glyn is happy to use these various parts, the Beatles 8-track, EMI's mixers and IBC's preamps. George Martin also indicates that George's 8-track is a backup for another machine, presumably borrowed from Boston Place. Standby? Well, I mean, we, we, 
Are they going to bring him another machine? Another machine as well. So, all the main thing is like, are we going to do it here or around? Because once we say we're going to do it here, definitely, then you, you know that. And you can build, see, because they're going to build a control room, George. You know, in here, so that Actually, like, we, we, may not, we may not have to. I, I, I might be able to get a, a dubbing theater across the way, which Nancy's is finding out for me now. But it'd be nice. I like the idea of building it because if we build that, then we'll have to build something else, but we, so we can like do, think of a structure, like uh, well, you know, I mean, like a bit there for us and a bit at the back of it. That's it. Oh no, right now, not not right next to where we're playing. But something like that, you know, it's like, I'm well, just, getting, we had just it. getting into it, it can be good, you know, like sort of three, four big sort of, however many things you need, say you need in three places, then three big domes or three big square structures off each other where that was control, that was where you played, and that was Michael and the Hogs bit, you know, then the cameras worked. Paul still wants a decision on whether to use this studio. This requires the building of some structures inside the studio. It's the first positive idea they've presented for the show. What are the alternatives? I suppose you get a designer to do that. What alternatives of where you want to go? Hey? Doesn't a designer do that? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's just actually, like, we, you know, it's really anywhere as long as we can get it. Yeah, I mean, are there definite places? It's very impractical. No, I don't know anywhere. That's why. Yeah, So it might just be one, two, three, though, or one, two. Right. Yeah. Awesome, right. It really depends where Michael, how you think you're putting the audience. If you were there, we were here. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. You've got to get all the equipment here. I mean, it can be done. It can all be done. It can all be done. Yeah. True. It's a bit hard. But what about the possibility of doing it somewhere else? And if so, where? Yes. I mean, just thinking of walking around here, see if there's anything else on this lot. There's a smaller studio, isn't there, just yeah. over there? Yeah. And there's the used? dubbing theatre, well, which would be a really intimate cavern. The set yeah, you're thinking yeah. for us, are you? Do you want oh, yeah, you see, maybe yeah. a small smaller one would be better acoustically. Yeah, like small for you, intimate you thing. Yeah, for us. But I don't know if that's yet yeah. mm -hmm. It's really, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, no, no, don't, don't worry about it. Don't tell me to say yes. Yeah, 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 then you Dennis O'Dell is now involved in the conversation. Dennis jokes to Ringo, they're building sets on the other stage if you don't believe it. A reference to his comments on the second. Well, where do you think so far? Well, I think you might as well do it right. Yeah. Yes. You know, if 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 we no, know acoustically, it's not very good here, is it? It's not. It's not as good as it could be elsewhere. You know. Now, what would make it a lower ceiling? Deaden it right down. Yeah, a lower ceiling, a full ceiling above where you are. Right. So, which, see, we might be able to do that. To build. Anyway. Don't don't worry about and it. And even it comes, then you You know, the, so we must get into those kind of things yeah. if we decide that. In having an audience. Like a backdrop of some description, a heavy backdrop. Club, around, yeah. yeah, round. Yeah. With drapes. Yeah. Things, yeah. Would, would do the rest. 
Yeah. What happens out there doesn't really matter except Out the there? You are having the audience out there. You're not, you're not having a um, Hey Jude bit again with them all around you, are you? Oh, we leave it Yeah, I mean, let's we keep them a bit more disciplined than they were then. They were really invited to come up and focus yes, right. on that one. We'll just keep oh, well, them it can be, don't get on the stage. Yeah, and the stage well, could be that high and they don't get on the stage. Put a barbed wire entanglement down the front. I mean, that's quite a nice relationship, that one, because that's like... The audience. Yeah. That's high enough. That's high enough, yeah. George doesn't sound too taken with the idea of repeating the Hey Jude experience. George Martin suggests putting up barbed wire. Paul suggests the stage the same height as the drum riser. Ringo agrees. Dennis clarifies an 18-inch rostrum. And you're not sort of too far away from everyone. If we had a bigger area like this, yeah, that, that would be like What about raising your audience? Tubular refers to scaffold poles and connectors to make a tiered seating, one presumes. Paul suggests a gladiatorial stadium look. George suggests a doorman to keep the bad ones out and let the good ones in. It reflects his quite negative attitude towards Beatle audiences. John's unique personality comes through here. He offers his opinion in the form of a song. I'd like to say that I like the suggests that good miking would counteract the bad room sound. This doesn't take into account that bad sound in the room would affect the performance and as George Martin points out, the experience of the audience, though Glyn misses that point. Tape runs out. This is roll 37 wild. Michael Lindsay Hogg can now be heard, having missed some important suggestions. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 
George's reference to leaning on a lamppost is a subtle way to suggest doing some Beatles oldies. But instead, Paul sings his way through a verse, accompanied quite well by George. Are you going to be doing leaning on the lamppost? Yeah. 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 Considerably yeah. smaller, you know. I'm leaning on the lamppost down the corner of the street. In case. Leaning on a Lamppost is a popular song from 1937, written by Noel Gay. Its best-known version is by Wigan's own movie star comic George Formby, in what was a change of style for him, having made a career out of innuendo-filled comic songs. George may be thinking of the 1966 Herman's Hermits cover version, which actually reached number nine in the US Top 100. Take a look. Take a look. John demonstrates a song he wrote for Ringo. Take a look at Annie. Take a look at Annie. Doesn't appear to have been developed any further. At this point, it's just the germ of an idea, possibly inspired by the bands The Weight and the refrain, Take a Load Off Annie. George has also got a song for Ringo which he claims Dylan wrote, Maureen, named we presume for Ringo's wife. He says it's based on Paul's tune, Thingamabob, which contradicts the idea of it being a Dylan tune. In fact, we'll play a little bit of Thingamabob and Maureen side by side so you can judge for yourself.
Maureen is a song that was probably written during George's stay with Bob Dylan at the end of 1968. Whether Dylan contributed to the song or composed it is unknown. What was also unknown at the time was that George had an interest in Ringo's wife Maureen that went beyond just friendship. In fact, he would confess his deep love for her to Ringo in 1972, an event that put pressure on both their marriages. But at this point, I don't think anything untoward had happened between George and Maureen. A trip around the studio complex is suggested to scout locations. Sink slate 73, camera A, camera A. George plays a bit of Talking About You, a Chuck Berry song known to have been the inspiration for Paul's I Saw Her Standing There. Talking About You was written and performed by Chuck Berry. First released in early 1961, the song is notable for being part of the Beatles' Hamburg Live set, captured on tape over the Christmas of 1962. A later version was recorded for the BBC. The bass line was adapted by Paul for their song, I Saw Her Standing There, also captured during the Hamburg shows and the opening track of their debut album. George, distracted by the guitar and the effect pedal, doesn't notice everyone is leaving. Look around, sorry. That sounded like Michael wanted a camera and a tape recorder for their scouting trip. Tape cuts. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.